Today in the podcast, I have a lovely lady with me. Her name is Grace Meadows, and she represents Music for Dementia in the UK. She is a bassoonist, and she plays with a number of orchestras, and she's also a music therapist. And she's got a lot of information concerning dementia. And I know there's a lot of people suffering from dementia. And just before we get into the interview, just to quote some numbers, in the UK alone, and these numbers, I think, were done in what year, Grace? 2019. 2019. So the numbers I'm quoting are from 2019. Um, there's over 42,000 people under the age of 65 with dementia in the UK. And what's really interesting in, in what you have here is there are 25,000 of those in ethnic communities in the Black, Asian and minority ethnic groups, which is an interesting number. Welcome to the podcast, firstly. Oh, it's a delight to be here. Thank you. Now, I thought the way that we talk about this whole idea of dementia, I don't want to kind of get depressed about this whole problem because there are solutions to dementia. That's the very first thing. And music is a very strong part of solution based thinking concerning how to handle somebody with dementia. And we're also going to cover in this interview as well about what people can do to hopefully avoid such a situation in their lives. Um, so firstly, can you just tell us well, firstly, what is dementia for those who don't know it? And what have you learned as to the causes and what are the reasons that people are thinking why dementia happens? Yeah, I mean, we could talk for hours on this one, but I think uh, it, it's safe to say that dementia is a disease of the brain um, and it affects people in a variety of different ways, depending on what type of dementia you have. So there are over 100 different types of dementia. And some people have a singular type of dementia, so, say Alzheimer's, which is a very common form of dementia, um, or some people might have uh, more um, uh, sort of niche dementias, as it's called, like a Lewy body dementia. Um, and other people have mixed dementias, so they'll have a combination. Um, and it's, you know, there's, there's lots of signs that um, you can see um, I think that, that lots of the dementia organisations have great guides on things to look out for in terms of when you think something might be uh, not quite right with somebody when it when it comes to memory and functioning. So, you know, it's not only the things like forgetting what you had for breakfast or where you put the keys. It might also be people's changes in their personalities or in their mood um, or tasks that they once used to be able to do without blinking an eye about they they can't remember they don't they don't know how how their hands relate to the activity that they're wanting to do which can then lead to frustration and and um a change in mood but it's really important for people to familiarize themselves with those signs so that they can spot them but then start to take actions in response to that pretty quickly and what, and that might be what would be the most common age group for people to develop this problem i mean what would be the youngest age you would see um I, it's the majority of people living with dementia are over 65 okay. but we're seeing an increase in people under 65 which is a category called early onset right. and we're seeing an increase in that number and people as young as 30 can get dementia wow and is there a commonality between people who get dementia in terms of their health lifestyle 
you know, what, like, if you were to look at society and you were to break it down now, forgive me, this sounds very elitist and I don't mean it to come across this way, which you would say if the upper class that, you know, have less stress, maybe now this is very generic. And then you have the working classes, perhaps that, you know, experience maybe a lot more stress. So, for example, if I look at the numbers here, we're looking at 25,000 back in 2019 in the UK were from black, Asian and minority ethnic groups. And typically those groups, I presume, experience a lot of stress because they're a minority group. Does like does all of that play into this whole notion of dementia? Yeah, I think I, I, th I mean we haven't done a, a RCT that um, a, you know a randomized control trial of scale that helps us really define what it is that causes it. We you know we're we're so many years off finding a, a cure for it, but what we do know are things that we do as humans that don't help our brain health but there are things that we could be doing to help our brain health. So things like more exercise, eating a really good diet, making sure you get regular sleep, uh, you know, your full eight hours a night is so important. There's been lots of research out recently about the processes that go on in the brain at night, you know, clearing out all your thoughts from the day, clearing out the brain on a chemical level, recharging it, if you like. And that's really important because this is where you know, the dementia starts to present itself is when that clearing out system doesn't work. So people listening might have heard of things called plaques uh, talked about and you get the buildup of plaques in the brain and that's the dementia developing. And actually sleep is really associated with that. So if you're not getting enough sleep, you're not clearing that out. And then those plaques build over time. But things like heart disease, diabetes, smoking, drinking, not doing enough exercise, these kinds of things don't help us in any way, really. Um, and it's not to say you can't have fun, but it is about looking after yourself and really thinking about, you know, your brain being as important as your gut. You know, we, we're in this age now um, where we think an awful lot about our gut and our gut being our second brain, but we mustn't forget our first brain. And so what, what kind of supplements would you recommend somebody who's healthy to take for brain health? Well, I think lots of people talk about taking omega oils. Um, a fish fish oil so that's why often a Mediterranean diet is really encouraged generally for, for overall health and well-being that seems to be a very good uh, diet that's recommended for brain health I think your vitamin b's are really important as well we know that's acutely linked to to mood uh, and memory uh, so b vitamins are definitely worth uh, checking in on making sure you've got enough of those vitamin D because then, you know, if you get enough vitamin D, it all helps with your melatonin and serotonin, you know, your sleep hormones. So really, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the science wavers, I think in terms of supplements, but I think if people are eating a, a good and healthy rounded diet, then supplements certainly worth talking to a medical professional about in terms of what might be useful for you. Yeah. So like, you know, getting regular blood tests and having that discussion is probably yeah, the best way yeah, to go forward yeah. yeah now you represent a group called um music for dementia in the uk and i've looked at the website and the whole thing is centered around music for those people who have dementia and very interestingly and what kind of set me on the path to getting this interview organized was i had seen a documentary from australia and there was a couple of professionals and they decided to trial music in a care home and the video was very impactful when it showed these people suffering from dementia how their memory got triggered in this in a way when they heard music which they would have played in their youth or really really enjoyed when they were in good health 
So can you tell us more about Music for Dementia and what that whole project is about? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So Music for Dementia is a national campaign calling for music to be made an integral part of dementia care. And the reason why we're so passionate about it is because sadly there isn't a cure yet for dementia. And so we have to do everything within our power to help those living with dementia live as well as they possibly can. And I think the pandemic has shown us this, that, you know, we can do better for those living with dementia and we, you know, we can't cure it, but we can bring moments of joy to people's lives and really help to bring that person back into the here and now and for that person to have a connection with those around them, be that family or carers um, or, or with their communities and to be seen beyond their diagnosis. And it's not it's not about, uh, you know, everybody uh, learning an instrument. It's about how we apply music into our everyday lives to enhance and enrich health and well-being. So we are really looking to try and change the policy around music and dementia care, but also build up that practice, that availability of musical care, if you like, for those living with dementia, be that in their communities or in a care setting or in a hospital or a hospice. It's about people having this knowledge of the power of music and that when you introduce it into the mix of the care that you're providing, it really can make a radical difference, not only to the person living with dementia, but those caring for them as well. Yeah, I'm just looking here at your infographic as well, and it says that 67% um, of people, their agitation was reduced because music was brought into their environment. And I know like with this whole deal with dementia, Alzheimer's and so on, frustration on behalf of the patient is mm -hmm. an issue, can be mm -hmm. a big issue for the family as well, mm -hmm. trying to deal with that. And then it also says here in the infographic, through regular singing, depression levels can be reduced by 40% in care settings. I mean, that's making it a better place to work in as a caregiver in that environment, as well as for the patients and family visiting and, and all of that. It's it's amazing what music can do. Amazing. Absolutely. It's, 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 a, it's a real joy it's, and something that we should be doing much, much more of. And, you know, last year in the UK, the government produced a report which said that we need to stop over medicating people. We are over medicating people unnecessarily. I can't agree more. I've seen it. I can't agree and, more. You know, that stat that you just quoted there is really profound because it gets to the heart of this, which is that music's about relationships and it's about people. And community. And what you're doing is when you're using music with somebody, you're taking time to listen to them, to really hear them and be with them. And so you don't need, in some instances, the medication mm -hmm. because actually the, there is no medication for frustration. There is, there is only one thing and that's time and an ear you know, and giving that person your full attention and the quality of your listening. And you find that you, that happens when people are making music with other people. So, you know, that's why that stat is so profound and, and yes. really, you know, is, is something that we must pay more attention to and get, you know, dig into. It's like, so why is it that it can do that? And I think it's because of the qualities that go on when you have a musical connection or a musical relationship with somebody. And I think the, the, the depression thing is fascinating um, because, you know, we, we're social creatures. Oh, totally. And I mean, this pandemic has really shown that. Yes. What it exactly. does, you know, the lack of connection, what it has done, a tsunami of, I've heard this phrase, a tsunami of mental health issues have, yes, has occurred indeed. since, yeah. Indeed. And, you know, when you when you play music, when your brain is engaged in music, the reward system fires up 
and has a brilliant time. And so instantly your um, mood lifts. Instant so gratification, can... better than any yeah. sweet. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to tell that to my sweet tooth. But, um, you know, there is something about... Um, there is something about the, the shared experience, the shared common purpose, uh, the, the, the feedback you get in the moment in terms of your emotional change, your hormonal change, but the feedback you're getting on an auditory, a sensory level, by having that shared experience with, with, with others through music is really profound. And, you know, we, there are so many amazing singing groups across the, across the UK, and, and I'm sure in Ireland too, you know, you're a country of, of music. So, you know, you get you get it better than most but you know we're not tapping into it enough and that's really what we're trying to do with this campaign is is shout about or you know sing in chorus if you like about the power of music particularly for people living with dementia because we need to help improve the quality of care and enhance and enrich it through using music to help improve the quality of life well it's like i often think back to the special moments music has created for all of us whether we go to a concert or we go to some form of venue or whether we're at home in our homes just jamming together having a bit of fun and everybody gets their space and everybody has a value and i mm. feel like with some of these people they're thrown into nursing homes and they're forgotten about and yeah. where is where is their value then and mm -hmm. i they must feel it even though their minds aren't working you know don't you know their minds aren't working properly they must feel that lack of value in society compared Absolutely. to the way they would have been living when they Absolutely. were in good health lots of people um who live with dementia who are able to verbally articulate their their feelings around this and even in, you don't also need words often to understand what it does in terms of stripping away someone's personality their sense of autonomy and their sense of agency self-esteem and, and self-esteem anguish and yeah and then you know they they fold in on themselves and they become yeah. really withdrawn and um inhibited and i think that you know what we're saying with music is it's a way for people not just to be recipients of care but to be contributors and that's yes. so validating you know so many people living with dementia have so much to contribute just think about paul harvey the, the 81 year old musician and composer that I've had the greatest privilege of getting to know, um, like his music's been around the world. Mm. Like that story was was the ray of sunshine we all needed in the. In so the tell me about Paul Harvey. What is his story? Because I I haven't heard his story. So he is um, he's an 81 year old man and he's got uh, dementia, um, but he's played music all his life. He's been a teacher, a composer, a pianist, and um, during during the uh, the pandemic, uh, his his son uh, Nick asked him to improvise at the piano and gave him four notes to play with, and without hesitation, uh, he just put his hands on the keys and worked this incredible improvisation, which um, I I remember hearing it the first time and was really moved by it. Um, and I didn't know this backstory. I just heard the piece of music. And I was like, wow, who's composed that? I'll give you some random notes and um, see what you can do with them. Uh, F natural. A. D. B natural. Those are your four notes. Do, 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 do.
So he he has dementia, Paul Harvey himself. He has dementia. My yeah, goodness. Paul Harvey has dementia, and and uh, and his his four notes uh, was broadcast on BBC Breakfast, and then it inspired a million pound donation from Sir Tom Hunter, the Scottish uh, philanthropist, and um, and I I had the incredible privilege of being on BBC Breakfast when they told us that they were donating that half a million pounds. Oh my goodness. To, to us and the other half to the Alzheimer's Society. So we created a Paul and Nick Harvey fund and we we donated all of that money, every penny of that donation went to organizations providing um, musical support for people living with dementia. And you know, what that man has done with music I mean, it's an exceptional story, but of course, but it just illustrates it illustrates a point. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Point. He, you know, it, it was a real a real moment in time. But he, you know, he inspired a donation, which inspired a fund, which has touched, you know, thousands of lives, and his music still continues to inspire people today. Let alone everything that he's done throughout his life in terms of teaching and composing and playing music with people. I'm just sensing here that there's a huge opportunity, though, for musicians at a local level to actually give back to their local, uh, you know, community group that may be involved in looking after patients as daycare dementia carers or even yeah. going into nursing homes and so forth if the doors are open now. Um, you're a music therapist. Can you just speak about music therapy in terms of a career path for mm. musicians who might like to get involved in giving back? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, being a music therapist is a real is a real privilege. I feel myself saying that a lot today, but I think we are privileged to have music in our lives and to be able to use it in, in the many wonderful ways that we do. Um, and I think what we've seen during the pandemic is so many musicians be affected um, by not being able to perform. A lot of them going through real serious mental health struggles because they're not able to perform and connect and use their music in ways that they have wanted to. And, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's something that people are starting to, to, to come round to more is that music is, is performance and it's lots of other things too. And it's this tool that we've got, uh, you know, to support our health and wellbeing and that, and that you can be skilled in using that. And, you know, we were just talking earlier about the number of people who are training as music therapists in the UK is on the increase because people want to be using music in a therapeutic way. They want to be able to apply it to support people living with dementia, but it could be children with autism, it could be adults with learning disabilities, it could be in maternity care, it could be adult psychiatric work. You know, the, the, the joy of music is you get to work with all kinds of client groups. And so, um, in the UK, the, there is a requirement that you have a level of mus musical proficiency um, that because because that's the channel that you work with, you know, so you yes. have to be you have to be a skilled musician. And then you go on and do your master's training and your master's um, allows you then to get state registration, which means so in, in terms of musical proficiency so in the uk system commonly people are used to going through you know the grades one through eight and then doing diplomas after that or else going into a degree yeah. program in university so what kind of skill level are you looking at to be accepted into music therapy study um lots of people have come at it from uh having done a music degree of some kind but some people have been amazing musicians all their lives they've never been near a music conservatoire they've just performed and performed and really honed their craft and their skill and they're as equally good 
musicians, if not better. And so really it's, it's a lot about your musicality, but your personality type and your passion and your interest in this work. Yeah, so you, you, really, you really have to be called to this kind of work. It's something you would not do unless you feel that, you know, you, you're that, it's, yeah, it's a very specific personality. Yeah, if, you were, well, if you were to if you were to really hone in on the ideal personality for this music therapy career path, how would you describe that personality? Um, God, that's a great question. Um, I think it's characteristics. So I think you have to be empathetic. And I think you have to be compassionate. I think you have to be generous. Um, I think there's something about having some form of lived experience uh, of dealing with uh, perhaps trauma or uh, living with a condition. Uh, it could be, you know, a family member. It could be your own your own experience. I think it's um, having a real sort of sense of how the mind and body integrate and how one affects the other and. The role that music has to play in supporting that and and a real passion for people and communication because for me music is so much about people and relationships and connections to the point where the music is almost the backdrop <laughs> for what you know can happen really when when you use music and so i think it's it's certainly having that kind of passion and interest in people and music and relationships and and what happens that alchemy when you put all of that together and you know, you you talked about it there in terms of changing spaces and places, and I've certainly seen that in my work, whether that's you know a hospital or a day setting, you know, music changes really the atmosphere. It it changes. Oh my goodness! Like you could have this very quiet atmosphere, and if you if you visualize being a hospital mm. or mm -hmm. some nursing home, and you're hearing the noises of the staff moving around and the clinking and the clanking, and then suddenly music kicks in then the environment yeah. changes and everybody just lifts up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I worked in a maternity unit, um, there was always the beep of the bell. You know, people yeah. were ringing for pain relief or, you know, they needed the nurse's attention. And this bell would go off and it was really annoying. And, you know, we worked out what note it was. And so actually we were able to mask it helpfully. You could still hear it, but it wasn't the only thing. There was no sort of silence bell, silence bell. It was bell in the music. Right. And, you know, it just it just took the edge off that bell. Yeah. But in doing so, it um, we were finding that staff were telling us that they actually enjoyed being at work and yeah. that they were much more relaxed and they were changing the way that they were talking to patients. The, they were finding they were changing the way that they were talking to each other. They felt themselves being more effective and more efficient. Their quality of care was going up. You know, amazing. So I'm not I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Because you, when you study music from, now I'm not an expert in this, but you look at music with sound waves in mind, or you look at frequency, or you look at this whole idea of energy, and mm. music then just uplifts all of that, mm. it's it's going to have that effect. It's going to de-stress people and, and well, just it's, it's change. Well, it's that transformative power, isn't it? Yes. You take it's... one emotion and you yeah. can work it. And, you know, that's why you can start listening to a piece of music and feel one thing. And by the end of it, you've felt something else because mm. you've been taken on a journey. Yes, exactly. You know, and it's, it's yeah. that way of, of, of transforming what you're feeling. That's why it, it's so effective. And, you know, we've, we've seen it 
um, with the Care Quality Commission here in the UK that inspects care settings and so on, that there is a direct correlation between an outstanding rating and the inclusion of music in the care that's provided. It's amazing. So it's it's just opening up a door for community musicians to get back into these places and do mm. their thing and get great responses from both. They, you know, such immediate satisfaction yeah. and fulfillment yeah. and purpose. It just all comes in. Now, you're a bassoonist and you play with orchestras. So can you tell us about your life with the bassoon? When did you start playing bassoon? <laughs> yes, um, uh, I, I started off playing the recorder like many, many a child. Um, and uh, sang in the local church choir um, and sang in the primary school choir and played in the recorder band and then played the violin much to played the violin horror. as well <laughs> yeah the squeak <laughs> of the violin I can imagine yeah she uh, she wasn't a big fan of my violin playing even when I did get a little bit better um, and I and it was when I went to secondary school uh, my my best friend Alex was playing the bassoon and I was at her house one evening and I put it together and had a blow on it and made an awful noise I'm sure but I thought it sounded brilliant and went to school and the next day and told the head of music oh I can play the bassoon and he said no you can't there's no way he said you probably can't even put that instrument together because there's there's five bits to it uh not counting the reed and uh uh he said, no, no, no you, you probably can't even put it together. Put it together. Put it together. Let me see you put it together. So I put it together. I was like, okay. Now now try and make a noise. And I honked on it. And he said, right, you can have some bassoon lessons. And that was it, really. Oh, really? And I was, I was 12. And I knew when I was about 14 or 15, I wanted to go to music college. So spent my teenage years doing all things musical, really. You know, choir singing five days a week because we had a fabulous school choir. Um and playing in orchestras and bands uh pretty much every day of the week <laughs> and then oh my goodness and then, and then went to music college and um you just loved it loved it um but also sort of fell out of love a little bit with it because really? because of the discipline required oh, okay. and it's you become an you you're basically becoming an athlete it's so intensive and for me it wasn't until years later that I understood what was missing it was the relationship element of it because yes performing is one thing but the music's traveling in one direction really it's going out isn't it yes it and is yeah whereas when you're working with people in a community practice or whether you're a music therapist you're working with people with music in a different kind so of way so you're getting feedback and but you're yeah, seeing the effect immediately there's a different kind of exchange going on and you develop a different type of musical language and when I came across music therapy I suddenly felt things had settled for me musically I was like oh I get this now I this has been the bit that's been missing for me okay. so I still I still play for fun um and uh I don't play professionally but I, I play with various groups um and got a couple of concerts coming up actually over the next couple of weeks, which oh, is really it's a really lovely thing to be playing again. I uh, know after the lockdown, people. oh my goodness, we've all missed the musical outings yeah, over yeah, COVID. Absolutely. I hope it never stops again. No, I really no, hope we can't, it never we stops. Can't have that. No, we can't. It, it isn't worth it. I don't think <laughs> I just don't think it's not worth it because I mean, as we mentioned earlier in this interview, tsunami of mental health is a result of a lockdown. We don't want that. No one wants that. No, and you know, we've now got a different sort of pandemic on our hands, really, haven't we, in terms of what we face as society. 
in terms of people's health and well-being. And, yes. you know, we're on a long road to recovery from the pandemic in lots of senses. And it's really about trying to do things differently now. You know, we don't I'm thinking, have to go back to what we did I'm, before. Yes, and I'm thinking there that there's a need for a conversation. Of course, the Russian-Ukrainian war is taking over a lot of the news at the present time, but there's a need for a conversation about living with COVID and returning to normality, which I'm not really hearing a whole lot about. Um, no, I think it's very difficult for things to get to get through. And at the moment, the only way time, I think the only way to break down the fear complex that's been built into everyone through the whole thing is to start having those conversations. And that's exactly the same with dementia. You you you've got to talk about it. You've got. If, to yeah, if, if you don't talk and verbalize these ideas, nothing can grow or develop or blossom from yeah. it. Um, yeah and and also as you say you know fallacies build up or myths build up that's right that aren't yeah. true and you yeah. know lots of people believe you know once you've got a diagnosis of dementia that's it. it no it doesn't have to be that you know your dementia journey is unique to you and you, you said really it important is you said earlier that even if somebody has the early onset of dementia that with the proper care diet and so forth it can be reduced or it's it's its growth, if you will, or development can be reduced or slowed down. Is well, that correct? It can certainly be. Um, it can certainly be sort of held at bay, if you yes. like. Okay. You know, if you're taking all the right steps and you're trying to keep yourself healthy, you know, you you are putting yourself in a much better place. You know, and the thing the thing about dementia, sadly, is that when when it starts to present itself in terms of changes to behaviour and so on, the the thing is that the dementia will have been working on the brain for you know 20, 30 years in some cases. You know, if somebody's 80 and they get yes. dementia, it's likely that, you know, the dementia is starting to build up in their brain from their 50s and 60s. Right. You know, and, and so it's it's really important as we age that we take really good care of ourselves. I think there's one key component, though, and it's a simple thing. We know about the diet. We know about supplements. Medical professionals will help you with that one. But sleep. Sleep. It's a big one in our world with technology affecting yeah. us and the phone beside yeah. our beds and yeah. all this stuff going on. And sleep is critical. Sleep is really important. And so is stimulation. You know, we often see that people's, we saw it in the pandemic, didn't we, that people living with dementia, because they weren't having the social interaction, their decline, their cognitive decline was really, really profound and rapid because there was nothing working those muscles. Those, yes, you know, those there was no, stimu no like. stimulation, if you will. Yeah, and, yeah. You and, know, the, you know. The, I was thinking through the pandemic that, you know, you have these different personality types. If, this is a whole discussion to itself, like you have the introverts and then you have the extroverts and then you have the in-between or somewhere. But I was figuring out because extroverts must have found it so hard. Like the introvert can cope with their own a lot easier. But, you know, the real extrovert that loves to be performing or out there in the street doing their thing or whatever, buskers and what have you, they must have found it a terrible, difficult time. Yeah, I think it was really, really difficult. Whereas I, I do think introverted people perhaps were able to navigate it slightly more A little easier. easier. I'm not saying it was entirely easy because I'm an introverted no, at no, my core, no. but it was a shadow easier, you know, a shadow yeah, easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can certainly see that. And I think, you know, we all, we all respond to different things, don't we, in different yeah. stimulation, but to not have, if you are an extroverted personality, to not have that feedback, whether it's from performing or, you know, interacting with people, not having that. Stimulation like for huge, their their brain makeup, yeah, their hormonal makeup. A huge, a huge part of them is, you know, is, yeah. it's been taken uh, you away. You know, and, the, the other thing about this as well is that um, 
the more that I'm learning, you know, you understand about all this hormonal movement, you know more about this than I would about the hormonal movement in the body and all of that, mm -hmm. that all those stimulations, whether it be through music or, you know, speaking with people or connecting with people or being in your community, all those hormonal movements in the body are making you a healthier person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's what it's, it's about keeping, keeping yourself going really well. And you know, and, and looking after all the different systems because we're made up of lots of different systems. Yeah, it's, some, it's complex. Some systems we're more uh, attuned with than others, but it's trying to really understand them and and, and work with them and not work against them, mm. um, yeah. which, it, which is the important thing. Yeah, very interesting. Now, I have a few funny questions for you. This podcast is called Music Secrets Exposed, and I'm wondering what musical secrets have you learned? I mean, you've been playing music for years. You're working with, you're, well, you're just doing amazing work. What musical secrets have you observed or learned? Like somebody need never have picked up an instrument before in their lives, but they can have a really profound transformative experience with music. And they can say that they don't have a musical bone in their body, but their lives can be transformed by music. That is an amazing secret. So you don't have to be a concert pianist or, you know. Uh, loads of grades behind you. Loads of grades behind you to feel the, the amazing effects that music can have. And what has created the most impact in your musical life? The most impact? For me or for other people? For you. I think it was uh, uh, my mum's unwavering belief in supporting me. That's to, beautiful. To, to um, have lessons, and she she went to great lengths to be able to afford lessons or a new violin or a broken violin string, getting getting a new one or buying yet more bassoon reeds. It was her her unwavering belief that she knew how passionate I was about it, and it was it was just something I I needed to do. And it's led you to this point. Yeah, yeah su supported it. So I. I feel incredibly grateful that she did everything that she could as a mother to That's beautiful. help have a life of music. That's beautiful. We all have different tools that we use every day to enhance our life or whatever. So what is the best tool that you choose to use in your life, musically speaking or otherwise? I think it is about, uh, for me, uh, personalised music. So I think that's the, the other thing with, the, with what we're saying about music for dementia. It's not a case of just any music it's about music that matters to somebody and I think for me it's knowing what are the songs that I go to when I need a bit of a lift what are the songs when I need a really good cry what are the songs when you know I want to feel I've got you know people's memories uh you know in mind it, it's really sort of knowing knowing music and you you again you don't have to be a musician to know this like some of the biggest music fans i know have never ever picked up a musical they instrument. just love music there's people they just, just love, music. love music yeah very true very and so true. i think i think it's really about knowing that you know you don't have to be a trained musician to feel its benefits yeah i, I couldn't agree more actually couldn't agree more now what is the number one growth tip that you would say you'd have discovered through your years of learning music or through your work with, you know, dementia people or whatever, the, the number one growth tip, because, you know, as you go through life, you grow, you evolve. I think a, a big growth spurt was moving away from the dots, if you like. So I'm a classically trained musician. So my comfort zone is to read music, 
not always brilliantly, but it's to read the it's to read the dots. On the I have page. to agree, actually, with that one. <laughs> I have to agree. Yeah, and and uh, um, and I think for me, when I embarked on my training, learning to trust the music and to feel the music and intuitively and instinctively let it go, take you to places, was it felt really risky and and uh, you know you're you're worried about fear of failure. But actually, if you don't try it, if you don't experiment, then you'll never know because the, there is an endless sound world out there that you can make with music. Completely, completely endless. You just you need to just give it a go, and I think that can be starting small. It can be taking one note and experimenting how to play it in twenty different ways, mm. and then you you put another note with it and see whether that works. Is it dissonant? Is it harmonic? You know, how does it fit with it? Um, you know, and then you build it up from there or you hear a snippet of a rhythm and you start tapping it out and you're like, well, how might that translate onto my instrument? You know, it's just, it's just allowing the music to flow a little bit. And so the dots are fabulous. Like we have an amazing world of uh, notated music that, you know, is part of our powerful musical legacy. But there is also many, 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 many ways in which uh, music it makes itself heard through improvisation whether that's you know yes and you know songs that's that get passed it. down from families or you yes know, um music that you know just seems to be inherent in people's fingers when they play an instrument you know it's that it's that that lived culturalness of music that is really exciting so i think a big growth spurt for me was certainly moving away from the dots and you know there's one thing in the classical world and I, this isn't to say, and I'm speaking very generically here, but in my own experience, this whole idea of improvisation isn't really encouraged. Whereas if you study mm -hmm. jazz music, improvisation is like from grade one or from the very outset. And, um, yeah. and this whole notion of jamming together in groups and having fun. And the sound might be terrible to the listener, but you're having fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're just connecting and you're learning your way through it. You're learning your way through it, that you're, you'll hone it more and more and more. And then it becomes something. But just to be willing to go through the process. But it's it's just what you're re referencing there as well about moving away from the dots. I think it takes hours of dedication as well to have the music in you flowing through you to be able to do that if you're mm. classically trained. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that you see and you see this by the uh, the musicians classically trained or whether they're improvised you see characteristics uh, come through which are really transferable and I think that was another another learning point really is the transferability of musical skills we don't we don't talk about this nearly enough but you know when you play an instrument you're a leader you're a soloist you're a team player you're a collaborator mm -hmm. you can be an orchestrator you can be a facilitator you know you you, you there are so many different things you can and are by being a musician yes. um, you know you can give confidence to other people you can be a real enabler um you know th there are so many amazing qualities that we don't think about how they might translate into other jobs or other ways of being yeah and i think you know there are lots of fabulous musicians who you know work in hospitals for example and they will draw upon their musical skills when they're leading a team in a crisis moment you know they're treating they're treating someone who's just been rushed into A&E they'll know how to orchestrate that they'll know how to you know arrange people in what places they'll understand the roles they'll know what roles work well together and you know they do that with real aplomb 
because they've got this ability to work with people and they'll hear things potentially differently because when you're listening to music and you're playing definitely playing it you listen vertically and horizontally and up you know and across and around yeah in other words your hearing is more attuned yeah you're always looking and I think that you know that active listening that you do in music again is one of those many transferable skills it's yeah exactly the musical skill has so much attached to it that it develops the brain in a very unique way and i mean i was researching there a number of years ago about what does piano playing do to the brain over a long period of time the very fact the hands are moving on the keyboard your feet are at the pedals you're looking at the sheet music you know there's so much going on in your body and it's specifically unique now to piano and scientists have discovered how that it connects parts of the brain together that wouldn't otherwise connect um yeah look it up you know if you're interested but it's it's a fascinating uh thing to discover because you see these uh nuances of difference to those who have played music for years and sustained the musical skill for years to those who haven't mm-hmm. and i've i've seen it that the people who haven't gone down that route of doing music they're missing something unless they're very into sport and very into something like that instead. But for people mm. who may not be into sport and don't do music and they're just working and doing their thing, mm. there's that little nuance is missing. Um, yeah, and I think, I think what you're saying there is just how important it is to find the thing you love, you know, and, and really keep at it. Yeah, keep, yeah exactly. Think, keep at it, keep the passion going and find yeah, ways to sustain think, it. Yeah, and you know, music is something that we can all relate to as musical beings. Totally. So, yeah, totally. you know, whether you're a lover of music and you enjoy listening to it, mm-hmm. keep listening. Or, you know, if you're a player, keep playing. There's there's real value and worth in that. And, yeah. you know, yeah. there's just so much we we don't yet do with music that we could be doing. I, you know, I get excited thinking about the untapped potential of music. <laughs> this uh, could be another conversation. I want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do that isn't being done with music? That's an interesting thought to leave with. That's yeah. very interesting. That's interesting. Now, how can people reach out to you? Well, we would love people to, to visit our website, musicfordementia.org.uk. Use all those resources they've been created with, with you in mind. Uh, and they're adaptable. So they're obviously for people living with dementia, but we're thinking very much about the transferability of that knowledge. Um, so, you know, you might be caring for someone with autism. So some of the information will be applicable for example um but yes visit the website get in touch support the campaign and then you can find us on social media across instagram and facebook and twitter um we'd love to uh, hear from people and for them to tell us their stories of how music has made a difference for them yes very good very good so the website is musicfordementia.org.uk and Indeed. i'll have the link in the show notes where they can visit where the listeners can go to well it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation and been very interesting to hear your story around all this and it's fantastic work you're doing it just really is and i hope that people listening to this podcast will find a way to be able to give back to their communities in in this way if they play music so fantastic thank you that's a lovely lovely conversation thank you so much Thank you.